following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Jesus made his way to the Mount of Olives and there with his disciples he slept he was tired he'd been teaching in the temple all day but early the next morning Jesus leaves the Mount of Olives and he returns to the court of the women where the people were gathering to hear him speak once more He sat down, indicating that what he was going to teach 
was of great importance. And the people gathered around to hear what he would say. In the midst of this teaching, there was a sudden disturbance. The crowd was pushed aside. And a woman was dragged out in front, disheveled, barely clothed. She was brought by the scribes and the Pharisees. She had been caught in the actual act of adultery. They had drug her out of the bed of a man who was not her husband. They brought her to stand before Jesus, ashamed and alone and condemned. And they said to him, Teacher, in John the 8th chapter, Teacher, this woman was caught committing adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, we're commanded to stone such women. So you, what do you say? They were saying this in an attempt to get him to say something that would allow them to go to the Romans and find an excuse to accuse him. Jesus acted as though he had not seen them or the woman. Everyone crowded around was eager to hear what he would say. They waited to catch whatever he would perhaps pronounce. Jesus bent down and he began writing on the ground with his finger. They continued to press him. They continued to question him, to demand that he answer them. And finally he straightened up and he looked right at them. And he said to them, The sinless one of you, let him throw the stone at her first. And then he simply bent down again and was writing in the dust on the ground. Now, we don't know what he was writing, but whatever he was writing was convicting the conscience of those who were standing there demanding he answer whether they should stone this woman. It's also interesting that they leave in order of age, indicating that Jesus must have written down perhaps the sins, the unknown sin, of first the eldest one and then going down in age. And one by one, They were convicted of conscience, the scripture tells us, and they began to walk away. Until finally was Jesus alone with this woman and, of course, the crowd standing around waiting to see what would happen. Jesus finally stood up straight and he said to the woman, Where are those men, your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, 
Neither do I condemn you. You must go and stop sinning from now on. You must go and stop sinning from now on. I was looking at a a popular religious magazine of our day, an evangelical charismatic magazine, and they had an excerpt from a book published by Baker House. And this author did a very clever thing with this story. The author spoke about how we must not have a judgmental spirit and that all of us have sinned. But then the author left the scriptures and began to twist the message. The author writing of this said, this woman came to know Jesus and now she was covered by grace. And now she had a new life. She knew she was loved. They wrote of this woman now as though she were converted, saved. They wrote of her now as one who walked under grace. Now, she was not expected by this author to stop her sinning. She was expected instead to simply accept the righteousness of Jesus because obviously she could not be righteous. But Jesus was righteous and now he covered her so God looking at her did not see the woman He simply saw Jesus. Jesus, however, continued. He spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. The one following me may by no means walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. The greatest need we have in this modern world is that we would leave the darkness and walk in the light. The greatest need of the church today that has entirely left the truth of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ The church today has discounted the blood of Jesus to be no more than that of bulls and goats. It only believes in declared righteousness, not in being made righteous. Now, I need to be very clear with you today. The greatest need of the Christian church in America is to lay aside everything they think they know and to simply pick up the scriptures and read them and believe what they say. Not what John Calvin said they must mean. 
not what Martin Luther said they must mean, not what the Roman Catholic Church said they must mean. A dear Roman Catholic person this last week made the statement, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't believe that the stories about Jesus are true. But she's a good Catholic. We have many good church people who have refused to believe the fullness of Scripture. My life has been challenged and directed by my recognizing the difference between what I was taught in my seminary training and what the Scriptures actually say. It has caused me great consternation and trouble in my life as I have discovered that the Scriptures do not agree with what my denomination of birth taught. And then as I explored other denominations and other churches, I found almost across the board a standard of righteousness that was not found in the scriptures or in the teachings of Jesus. Please, these issues are life and death. We must carefully consider them. We must understand it will take time to read the scriptures, to think, meditate, and pray For no one can stand between you and the judgment bar of God except Jesus Christ. Your pastor will not stand before the judgment bar of God and answer for you. You must stand and answer for yourself. And so it is imperative that you understand what the blood atonement of Jesus Christ was about. You must understand that it was for the forgiveness of sin. And the word forgive in the Greek means removal. You must understand that Jesus Christ came to remove your sin, not just past sin, but present sin, all sin, the power of the shed blood of Jesus Christ is to save us from sinful acts or deeds and to cleanse us from that state or that nature in this life that came to us through our parentage. Now, there is a gospel today that is not a gospel. It is believed by most Americans. And that is telling us that in our standing, God sees us as holy, though in a state we remain sinful. If our state on earth is sinful, 
our standing in heaven is that of a sinner. And sin inevitably, certainly, and absolutely brings spiritual death and separation from God. What we do in this life is who we are in the sight of God, for we cannot live wrong and die right. We cannot remain sinful in our state and look holy before God. That is absolutely, absolutely untrue. It is not what the scriptures teach. Now, part of the problem is that salvation words have been twisted so that they no longer mean what the scriptures interpret them as. For example, if you read Titus 2, 11 and 12, and verses 14 and 15, you will see that grace is enablement to live free from sin in this life, that it is not a mystical provision in which we are able to sin, but we're saved by grace. Verses 14 and 15 show that the very essence of Christ's death is for deliverance from sin, that he might redeem us from or separate us from all lawlessness. This is deliverance from sin. In fact, if you look at 1 John, the third chapter, verse 4, the sin is lawlessness. So Jesus came to cleanse for himself a people of lawlessness. But grace is twisted in the modern church to mean that retribution can no longer be required for sin. That the believer is covered as though by a blanket because Christ has already paid for them on the cross. Payment cannot now be further required. Hence, God cannot charge believers for their sins. This is a wicked lie. Grace is not a covering over our sin. Nowhere in Scripture is that taught. But the word faith is twisted to mean that the act of a moment eternally secures the believer. It is antinomianism. It is the old heresy that was anti-law. It holds that faith alone is necessary for salvation, apart from obedience to the moral law of God. That while God's laws are being broken, nevertheless, he sees these transgressors as holy in their standing, while in their state they remain sinful in this life. That is utter foolishness. If you have been taught this, you need to go back and, and read the scriptures again for yourself, particularly Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. Righteousness is twisted in the modern church to mean that the believer is simply 
counted as righteous rather than actually being made righteous by the power of the blood. The atonement is twisted to mean that all sins of the believer, past, present, and future, were forgiven, acquitted at the cross, by a a punishment that God punished God on the cross. Thus the sins of the believer for which the Savior gave his life in bloodshed and death on the cross are the sins in which the antinomian, the anti-law, lawless professor of Christianity trifles, believing that you don't have to leave your sin. Now, the word saved or sozo is twisted to mean that we are saved from condemnation and the wrath to come, but it is denied that the blood of the Savior is effective and powerful to save from the power and the practice of sin in this life. Such is the air of what is called Reformed theology. It is today in denial of the very essence of the atonement, of the power of the blood to save save from sin itself. And that's why this last week I called Reformed theology the Antichrist. It's already among us. Why do I say Antichrist? Because it has substituted a false doctrine that says a man cannot stop sinning that a man is going to sin all of his life there's no power of the blood to set you free now please may i say something if the power of the blood of jesus is not able to break now in the present the bondage of sin I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Let me say it again. If the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, if the blood shed on Calvary does not have the power to set me free from a life of sin, I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. I will not live a lie. If the blood of Jesus Christ does not have the power to set me free from the bondages of Satan, it is no gospel at all. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's how it is referred to many times in Scripture. It is the gospel of the kingdom of God. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is the gospel? It is not that Jesus died on Calvary and paid the price for your sin, and now you must continue to walk in wickedness and sin before an almighty God until you die. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus is that you can be transformed 
into the likeness of Jesus, if you will repent of your sin and allow God to accomplish a supernatural work of grace in your life to totally remove from you the old nature and establish you in righteousness today under the authority of the kingdom of heaven. This is an heir that can neither comprehend the power of the blood to save nor the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It will certainly, inevitably, absolutely bring spiritual death to your life. The heir of the Reformed and modern church finds its roots in ancient ancient Gnosticism. The reform system claims that sins done in the body cannot hurt the spirit. Thus, it is imperative that we understand the power and the unlimited, unlimited ability of the blood to completely save from the wrath to come and to break the power of sin over the believer in the here and now, in this life. The power of sin is broken totally, completely. That's what the word salvation means. So, let's be clear. What is sin? And what must one do to be saved? And what is meant in Scripture by being saved? Well, what is sin? In the New Testament, sin is simply rebellion against God. It's not missing the mark or good intentions falling short, as some say. That is the classical meaning, but it is not the New Testament meaning. In 1 John 3, 4, the Apostle John states very clearly, the sin is the lawlessness. So John asserts that sin and lawlessness are identical. Sin is a hostile lawless and rebellious disposition against God. Sin cannot be counted as a mistake. Sin is voluntary and it evolves out of a corrupt soul and is moral and carnal in nature. A mistake has its ground in our physical or intellectual weakness and is human in nature. Thus one is a is a moral quality or state. The other is simply a human trait. The scriptures do not teach that we are saved from all sin. I'm sorry, the scriptures do teach that we are saved from all sin. And I'm reading now from Malcolm Lavender, The Fallacy of the Sinning Christian. I want to share several things from him. The scriptures do teach that we are saved from all sin, but nowhere do they teach that we are saved from our humanity. Humanity is an attribute of being, while sin is the result of the fall. 
Sin is of the devil. First John 3, 8, we read, The one who does the sin is an offspring or a child of the devil. So I want to make it absolutely clear to you today. Sin is incompatible with grace and righteousness at any stage of a Christian's experience. Sin is of the devil and it is not of God. So if you are committing sin, you are one with the devil in standing and in the state of condition in which you find yourself. Sin is a state of spiritual death. You are in sin, cut off from God. You are cut off until you repent and forsake that rebellious heart. Genesis 2.17. It's interesting to me, the old LXX, which was the Bible Jesus used, speaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, now in whatever day you may eat from it, in death you will die. The day Adam and Eve sinned, they were then in a state of spiritual death, and they tried to clothe their nakedness with fig leaves. This death is spiritual death it is immediate in whatever day you sin the statement you will die is a verb in the future tense so in other words you die immediately spiritually but you will in the future soon die physically James 1.15 says, The soul who sins will die. It says, And the sin when finished brings forth death. Now John Calvin denies denies this let me share from the institutes the writings of john calvin he said the sin of believers are venal not causing death of the soul but because they are not deserving of death but because through the mercy of god there is no condemnation to them which are in christ jesus because they are not imputed to them but obliterated by the pardon Sin brings spiritual death to the believer. Revelation 21, 7 and 8 makes it very plain. It says, Those who sin, their part in the lake, the one being caused to burn with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Look it up, Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. From the second death there is no recovery. 
there is no hope. This is sin in its end result. This is the final separation from God eternally, forever, world without end. The concept of venal sins is absolute nonsense. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5.18 says, By one sin judgment came unto all conceivable men unto condemnation. And then in the very same verse, he tells us of another act that brought recovery from the fall of death. It was the one righteous act of the Son of God in sacrificial death, life for life, unto righteousness of life, extending to all conceivable men. So the question comes, what must I do to be saved? John Calvin answers this question, and the Reformed Church of today answers this question, by saying, when he, God, is pleased to save, there is no free will in man to resist. Wherefore, it cannot be doubted that the will of God cannot be resisted by the human will. Again, John Calvin says, all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation, and accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of these ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or to death. The Westminster Confession agrees with this, saying, the effectual calling is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man who is altogether passive therein. Prominent teacher on this radio station teaches the lie that you cannot repent until you're saved. Jesus did not teach that. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, You repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe are both in the Greek in the imperative mood of command, implicit to this inescapable imperative laid upon humankind by Jesus, is his understanding. Now, let me share this. Jesus believed that man had a will, and it was a necessarily free will. He believed that man could not be passive in the work of salvation. He believed that you had to be active, you had to do something, you had to repent before you could be saved. Jesus taught that man is not predestined, but rather all men in an unlimited offering of atonement, John 3.16, that all men could be saved. So Jesus issues a command calling for response on the part of his hearers. Jesus' command to his hearers was on the ground that he knew very well that man has a will which he addressed, that man is active in his salvation, and that Destiny was not settled by predestination. Consequently, man must repent, 
believe and continue in obedience throughout the Christian pilgrimage. And he does this by the power of the blood. He does this by the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit. So what is meant by being saved? People say to me on occasion, not knowing me, they'll say, are you saved? And I will ask them, what do you mean? Am I saved from what? And they want to say, are you saved from eternal hell? And I answer them, I am saved from my sins. And because I no longer walk in sin, because I consistently walk out a life not of sin, I am saved from eternal hell. So in Reformed theology, they assert that in salvation our standing is holy, while our state remains sinful. That we are saved from condemnation and judgment to come, but that salvation from sin does not take place until we die and go to heaven. This is an absurd position. It is not in agreement with the Scriptures. It is an attempt to give credibility to the error of the sinning Christian. Now, the word save is in the Greek, sozo. It is the notion that something radical takes place when one is saved, that the one saved has been removed from some danger or that danger has been removed in some way or both. Now, what happens if a person comes to believe that they are saved, but they continue to walk in rebellion and sin, they have been lied to, and this is Antichrist. See, the great problem the church is facing in our day is that Christians continue to walk and be identified like the world. Have you ever seen a man walk into work and be accused of being a Christian? No, that's not going to happen because in our culture, there is barely any distinction between a man who calls himself a pagan and a man who calls himself a Christian. According to Barna Research, according to research by Focus on the Family, Pagans and those who call themselves evangelical Christians watch the same television shows, go to the same movies, spend their money and their time the same way, go to the same places on vacation. A Christian just said to me, when I asked them, are you doing any traveling this summer? Oh yes, I am eager to go to Las Vegas. We're going to go to Las Vegas and do a little gambling, and we're going to watch the shows of Las Vegas. That's his understanding of a vacation. Well, that's the understanding of countless pagan people as well. It's not called Sin City for nothing. 
But Christians are eager to go to Las Vegas and walk right along in the sin with the pagans. Christians are eager to go to Disney World, even though Disney World is pushing a homosexual agenda. Disney World is not a Christian organization. It is a wicked, sinful organization pushing the one-world government. And yet Christians eagerly take their children and indoctrinate them with the make-believe. There's no difference. Then what does Sozo mean? If these people who eagerly participate in the movies and the, the professional sports eagerly participate in spending their money like the pagans spend their money, living like the pagans live, no clear distinction, no standing up for righteousness, no bold denunciation of the wickedness of our age, no demonstrable opposition to abortion, the murder of babies, no clear no clear word against transgenderism or homosexuality. No clear word against corruption in our government. No clear word against the secularization of our, of our culture becoming increasingly worldly. No opposition to the Christian church being removed from the town square. So what does sozo mean? Well, if you look at Matthew 14, 30 and 31, or you look at Luke 18, 41 through 43, or you look at Luke 8, 36, or you look at Matthew 1, 21, to be saved is not the act of a moment only, but a continued endurance to the end. Continued endurance to the end of being saved. So let's look. In Matthew, Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water until he begins to be fearful and he sinks. And he cries out to Jesus in those heavy waves, those billows. He cries out to Jesus, save me. And he is saved from the waves and he does not drown. Jesus reaches out a hand and pulls him out. So for Peter, sozo means to be dramatically rescued from drowning. Jesus does not say to Peter, go ahead and sink, go ahead and drown, and I will save you when I come in my kingdom. I will resurrect you in that great day. He does not say that. Or the blind man in Luke is sozoed from his blindness. Is he left in his blindness until he dies? No. Sozo is the dramatic rescue from the condition 
of death, of blindness. The man possessed by a demon spirit. It says he is sozo. He is saved from the demon. Does that mean the demon continues to reside in him? No. The demon is forced to leave. And the man is set free of sound mind. And we're told in Matthew one twenty one by the angel that Jesus will sozo his people from their sins. Does that mean that you're going to continue walking in your sin until you die? Absolutely not. You are sozo. You are saved from your sin. So we conclude that the word save means a radical deliverance from that which would, from which one was saved. And that in no instance is anyone saved in his trouble or saved both in and out of it at the same time. Whether it's some physical danger, a health problem, or sin, it is absurd to think that a Christian can be both righteous and sinful at the same time. Christian and sinner at the same time. To be saved then is to be made righteous in both your standing and your state. 1 John 3, 5. And you know that he was manifest that he may take away the sins John does not here represent the believer as both holy and sinful at the same time. In standing one thing and in state another, he avoids all double talk and says simply that Jesus takes away the sins. 1 John 3, 7, The one doing the righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Who has taught you that you cannot leave your sin? It is the common belief on every street corner. And so we as Christians have no valid testimony to bear to the pagans. Because as the bumper sticker so popular today says, the only difference between you and me is that I am forgiven. In other words, I'm still a sinner like you are, but I'm forgiven because I accepted Jesus. Now, if you'll accept Jesus, you can be like me. What a lie. Now, all of this causes me to very seriously consider, is there any sin in my heart? Is there any place where I am voluntarily giving myself up to darkness? And I have to tell you, I have been an utterly sinful man. A liar, a cheater, a manipulator. Unclean, arrogant, proud, angry, hostile, envious, jealous. 
I can easily say with the Apostle Paul, I have been the chief of sinners. But I bear witness to you today that Jesus has delivered me and he will deliver you as well if you will repent of your sin and ask Jesus to come in supernatural power and transform your life. I sometimes talk to a man who was a drug addict, a heroin user, and he was gloriously delivered from his heroin addiction. Now please answer me. Can Jesus deliver a man from his heroin addiction? But he cannot deliver a man from bitterness of heart? Can Jesus deliver a woman from prostitution? But he cannot deliver her from a jealous heart? Can Jesus deliver a murder? But he cannot deliver a man from his angry heart? Can Jesus not deliver us from all bondage of sin? Can Jesus not deliver us from all self-righteousness and give to us a humble heart? Can Jesus not deliver us from bitterness and anger and turning aside from our Lord Jesus? Can Jesus not deliver us? I want to tell you the good news today. There is wonderful news. I could read it. I could quote it to you, but you know, I just want to read it to you. And I want to read it to you from the Lavender Translation of the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave the one, the only one of his kind, Son, that everyone continuing to believe in him may not perish, but have eternal life. For God sent his Son into the world that he may judge the world, but that the world but that the world may be saved through him. For God sent not his Son into the world, that he may judge the world, but that the world may be saved through him. The one continually believing in him is not judged, but the one not continually believing has been judged already because he has not believed with abiding results in the name of the only one of his kind, Son of God. Now this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and the men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their works were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil things hates the light and does not come to the light that his works may be exposed. But the one doing the truth comes to the light that his works may be made known, that they may have been motivated by God. The good news is Jesus loves us. And when he died on Calvary's tree, he wants to supernaturally use that powerful atoning sacrifice to heal your heart and set you free. Will you repent today and turn aside from the lie of the modern church? And will you seek Jesus with all your heart? Now we've come to the end of the month. We're still about $800 short in being able to pay for our March broadcast. I would ask, please, I don't want to take a day for an offertory this week. Would you write to me quickly? The National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. That's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Or go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. I need to hear from you. I've been out much on this trip to Israel, but I need to hear quickly now from you. God bless you, my brother, my sister. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. I love you. I'll talk to you soon.